Hello, and welcome back to Floor 9. I am your host, Scott Elcherson. With me, as always, is my co-host, Adam Simon. And we're here with some pretty exciting news. And that is the U.S. Innovation Annual is now live. Woo! Hooray! Adam, are you excited about that? <laughs> I can't. I can't woo. <laughs> I need to a microphone. You can't woo. <laughs> sounds. Oh, it's it's going to sound so, terrible. No, it's going to sound great. Your mic sounds great. Um, well, Adam, listeners that might not be familiar with the Innovation Annual, can you just give a, like a quick rundown of what the Innovation Annual is? So we. At the lab, we produce a, a lot of different kinds of content over the course of the year. Um, and at the beginning of the year, we put out our, our annual outlook, which is puts a consumer lens on innovation. And the innovation annual, uh, which comes out in the fall in time to start your 2022 planning, that really puts a channel level lens on emerging tech and media. Um, and there are a few components that go into it as well. Uh, the 991, which is our framework for ranking the reach and maturity of these emerging channels. Um, and the Innovation Annual and the 991 also feed into uh, Futurecaster, which is our proprietary tool for matching our audiences to the specific innovation territories that they're most likely to be using. Absolutely. And this year is our fourth Innovation Annual, which is a super exciting, and there's been some new changes to it. Yeah. So for the first time, uh, we are incorporating the maturity of each channel uh, into its uh, its bucketing in terms of the 99.1, as well as uh, the reach in terms of the number of users and audience, the size of the audience you can reach with it. Um, so that was uh, a evolution of something we've been doing for a while. Great new updates. And of course, we had contributors across all of UM and, and IPG media brands. Adam, you wrote a piece. What, what did you write your piece on? I wrote about, I wrote two pieces. Oh, I wrote about uh, super, super bundles and the metaverse. Fantastic. I wrote about connected communities. Uh, this year, I actually passed off podcasting, which I was sad about, but excited to see it grow. One of the topics in the innovation annual that Adam and I are both excited about that we did not write uh, is data privacy. So we have with us this week on Floor 9 a very special guest, Ariel Garcia, UM's Chief Privacy Officer, to talk about some updates in the privacy industry. Notably, Apple has released iOS 15, which has some privacy features, updates that will be impacting consumers as well as brands and advertisers. There are some new legislations and laws that are coming into play. Uh, and so we sat down with her to not only talk about her innovation annual piece, but all of these updates in the space uh, and really what it means for brands. So with that, I want to welcome Ariel Garcia to Floor 9. Ariel, welcome back to Floor 9. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It is always a pleasure having you on. And I think this conversation comes at a really good time, considering Apple has recently rolled out iOS 15, which we know has a lot of privacy-first uh, products and features uh, included in this update. Uh, notably, there is the iCloud private relay, there is the hide my email functionality. Uh, so I'm just curious to kind of get your take on these new updates from Apple and how you see it impacting not only consumers, but as our brands as well. Yeah, so I mean, I, th I think they're all exciting and interesting. Um, I also think that the way they're, they're being rolled out is, uh, is interesting. So if we take a step back and think about um, when iOS 14.5 rolled out with app tracking transparency, the big takeaway um, for, that the industry was watching was about what that means for IDFA. The last time I was here about how <laughs> there was ambiguity there because it, it also seemed to impact um, Th things like like email, other identifiers. But again, 
there was some gray area around it and how Apple was enforcing it was um, was unclear and under scrutiny. So if we think about that as being predominantly about IDFA, this one is now focused on email and IP address. And so what you start to see is a, a little bit of this game of like, uh, you sunk my battleship, um, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like where... <laughs> Where, you know, it, because hide my email, for example, is going to to allow people to use emails that are not, you know, that are burner emails, essentially. Right, right. Um, th that kind of calls into question some of the emerging solutions, identity solutions that are relying on hashed email. The IP address piece starts to crack down on fingerprinting, right? But, but the reason I say it's interesting the way that it's happening is that... Um, so I'm not sure if you saw this, but some of the premium features like hide my email, for example, um, that were available to iCloud plus subscribers, you know, if you were trying to roughly quantify the scale of the impact um, early on, you'd, you'd look at the subset of the population that's an iCloud plus subscriber. That all got thrown for a loop because Apple automatically upgraded <laughs> iCloud subscribers. And so you start to see that like there seems to be some um, intentional game of you sunk my battleship going on where, where Apple also is making changes rather than focusing on enforcing the measures it's put in place. It's planning ahead for how it's going to weed out the workarounds without actually engaging in dialogue around it. So on, on the one hand, I think the changes themselves are, are, are good for people and right. give people more choice. I think the way that they're being rolled out, um, it in some ways is almost like driving to opacity instead of having like a more open dialogue with the industry so that this like whack-a-mole game can, can <laughs> <laughs> this is all really around email which is super interesting uh one password just announced a hide my email feature google has a hide my email feature so email seems to be the place where a lot of this innovation is starting when we think about that from like an advertising standpoint, like I guess how critical or how core has email come to, I guess, help us identify or make audience segments or like target individuals across like the larger industry? The net impact, again, as with basically all of this, um, it'll get us to a better place. Probably open rate isn't the best metric anyway. Ultimately, brands will adapt and they'll be focusing more on uh, engaging content and facilitating interactions. And, and that way, you know, they can direct people to, to their website and use conversions instead or form fills or, or these other metrics that are that are deeper and, and more valuable. And, and again, while also focusing more on content that engages people. So it, it's kind of like where we'll get to is good. This dynamic, to your point of um of Apple saying like, surprise, you know, <laughs> uh, I, I think that's, that's the piece that, um, that at least in my view, there could be a little bit more collaboration, um, right. Straight on. So that pretty much covers the here and the now, but if we look ahead to the cookie future, how do you see this all playing out? As we look ahead to the cookie future with Ashed email, being foundational to a lot of the identity solutions, um, that's where it becomes really important for us to continue to monitor and, and anticipate what scale of adoption and extent of impact might be, because it'll directly um, have an impact on on addressability, right? Like if there are less valid emails, there's, there's less valid matches. <laughs> so 
Um, and, and, you know, the same with, with the identity solutions that are um, relying on, on IP address, you know. So that's kind of what, what I'm staying close to is trying to understand the, the extent of, of, you know, the scale of adoption of these things so that we can, as we think about the future, understand how to evaluate identity solutions and their true durability. So it seems really difficult for a single entity or maybe even a collection of groups to come together and define, you know, what privacy means for individual use cases that can be very unique. Uh, For example, one person might be okay with sharing data, whereas another person doesn't want to share any data at all. And so like their levels of privacy and what that means to them are highly fluctuated. So how is the industry trying to tackle this problem and maybe bring some education to uh, the market and set some standards? Yeah, so I think like there's there are a few layers to to this question. So if we start with um, how we should be thinking about privacy, um, we should be thinking about privacy in order to to again avoid the whack a mole. It's thinking about <laughs> it from the from the consumer standpoint. What is right. fair and reasonable from from their perspective, and and what choices do they actually have? Like there's a distinction between. Um, you know, someone accepting something because the 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 user experience was annoying and they just wanted the the banner to go away versus like intentionally sharing information um, and understanding why they're sharing that information. And so I that's why I said before, like I think the mechanisms for facilitating transparency and choice are going to be super central to uh, to meeting everyone's standards for privacy, right? So I think we need all players, we need regulators, we need industry, we need people um, to contribute to the conversation in order to get to a place where, um, where things are workable and aligned to everyone's expectations. So Ariel, I just want to maybe dig a little bit deeper on one of the groups you just mentioned, and those are people, the individuals. How much of a burden or responsibility is privacy on the individual? Again, it's all in the execution. People are obviously increasingly aware of how their data is used. They understand the the digital economy uh, be- better and better over over time, right? And and I also think that this is an area of opportunity for our industry. Like we're we're best positioned to drive that literacy. If we lived in a in a reality where people did understand that, and you know, the IAB had had done a survey in Europe fairly recently where they found that, like, you know, a, a significant percentage, and I don't recall the exact number, um, of people do understand the value exchange, like the the fundamental one, the whole we get free services and content, you get data, like they they under they they appreciate that they wouldn't prefer to uh, to pay for content and services versus seeing ads, right? So we do see like that people are increasingly understanding um, the digital economy and and how their data is used. It's on our industry to drive that education, because if we live in a world where people are educated and informed, then it becomes more realistic. Oh, and if there's a central streamlined way for them to manage preferences, not when they have to, you know, adjust their browser settings, um, also adjust their settings with each, you know, website they visit on their on their cookie banner and also go to Apple and say, don't track and don't personalize, right? Like that's not tenable. If there were a central, a more central way to manage preference and people understood fundamentally like how their data is being used, 
then arguably there's a way to do this that isn't like an opt-in regime that achieves a similar end. We just don't live in that reality necessarily today. This brings me to like my next question of, are there any solutions out there that are starting to try and kind of capture this like more fragmented space with like a, like a global privacy control option? (laughs) Why? Yes, there is. So, um, (laughs) so to give some context on, on global privacy control. So, um, Global privacy control is essentially like uh, do not track 2.0. It's browser level uh, preference settings. So Mm -hmm. giving people a central way to manage their preferences at a browser level. The expectation is that other websites, other people in the ecosystem honor those signals, right? The way it started to gain attraction (laughs) on everyone's radars is Colorado um, recently uh, passed their law that will be operable in, in 2023. And part of their law requires global privacy controls to be honored. So right now, if you read privacy policies on like basically any website, they say we don't know how to honor browser level preference settings. So here's some things you can do to actually control your preferences that we know how to honor today. So that's not going to fly anymore. You know, the interesting thing is in the in the browser context, Obviously, they're going to be central to this dialogue, considering their browser level preference settings. Um, And yet Google for Chrome and Apple for Safari have yet to announce to announce any plans to integrate with them. um, At least as of a week ago. So unless something's changed. (laughs) So there are some challenges ahead for global privacy control, knowing that, for example, Google and Apple haven't said how they'd adopt it into their browsers that definitely control a large portion of the browser market. But uh, more high level, how does this global privacy control center come to life from like a user design element? Is it just a tab? Is it an extension? Is it just something that you can go into settings and turn on like private browsing? Uh, I'm curious if there's any conversation around how it actually comes to life. Yeah. So my, my understanding of the way that it's, it, is envisioned to work is that it would be like a a preference setting within your browser, right? If the browser integrates with it. So, um, so again, it it would start theoretically to streamline some of this, but who knows, like in practice, whether that's going to capture everything, it's not going to manage your preferences with respect to the email that you share with brands. So it's this issue of like, how do we have a streamlined way for people to manage their preferences online is going to continue to be important. So the FTC is focused on in the context of dark patterns or manipulative um, interface design, basically. Right. And the reason that that matters is because if you have like manipulative design, it it kind of subverts user choice and autonomy. Um, So like it could be abused to nudge people into revealing information that they didn't want to reveal, which could then further erode trust. And so I think, again, as we look ahead to third party cookie deprecation, I see this being an area that that gains a lot of attention because with first party data becoming more important, there's a risk that there might be optimization to data collection versus optimization to transparency and trust. Um, and so I do think that that this conversation around standards will continue to gain, to gain speed. Again, I, I know just from the working groups that, that I'm a part of, there are working groups around this. So there will be um, standards for, for how, 
how it's expected for you to um, provide that transparency and choice. There may be more than one, right? As, <laughs> as with like everything. But, uh, but yeah, I, I do think that this is going to continue to be important because to your point right now, it's a very confusing experience for people. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like one of these things where, you know, because there are so many different parties involved and, you know, especially when you get to like government, like, you know, regulatory bodies involved, you know, the, I think sometimes that like the technology companies, the people that are actually building the UXs are in a better position to create the better experience and kind of dictate how it should work versus something that'll be kind of mandated by a law, which most times doesn't or isn't that consumer friendly or isn't like the best solution. Uh, and so I kind of think of this, it's like, you know, now I get to your point, like now is a time for all these working groups, all these individuals to kind of build the right solution for consumers first. That is kind of modernized versus potentially being mandated something. And I think this is something that we're starting to see more broadly across the ecosystem is that, you know, Apple keeps going to court, Google keeps going to court, like, you know, the, the regulatory bodies are aware and they're starting to do things. Uh, and so, you know, I guess, your point now is time to act to like put the standards in place so that way we don't have some pretty heavy unintended consequences from a piece of legislation yeah and i think well so a couple of things number one i think you might be clairvoyant because um just yesterday there was a hearing uh, about privacy um it was i believe the senate commerce committee and this is kind of boring so i'll spend just one second on it but it'll matter i promise so the debate is basically like we need federal comprehensive privacy law. Um, and then there's a camp that's like, but in the interim, the FTC can also step up their enforcement and like, we should be funding them to be able to do that. So, and boring part, the exciting part is there was recognition that like either way, and certainly if the FTC is going to be expected to enforce that they need to be hiring technologists, UX designers, people that understand um, what this looks like in reality. So I, I do think that like that is recognized. Right. Who knows what will happen and in, in how long and, and whatnot. But it is definitely recognized that like government in a silo is not the answer to, to, to this because at, at its core, that's not going to result in something um, that is the the right thing for people, right? So collaboration is going to have to continue to be the answer and, and is the right answer. Um, and it's good to see, it's encouraging to see some recognition of that and, and the need for technologists in making this policy. The other exciting thing I think is this, um, the fact that we're understanding that preference um, and privacy is part of the user experience, I think is a great opportunity for our industry. And of course, for brands, we're moving past this consent management, like cookie banner space and into a space that's more focused on like holistic management of user preference and how you can also bring your marketing stakeholders to the table in designing that so that you're not just collecting um, people's preferences as to what you do with their data, but how often do you want to hear from me? By the way, like what size shirt do you wear? If you want to tell me, I can send you coupons. And you can start to like have like a more uh, an actual conversation <laughs> with with your consumers um, and and 
you know, a, a more seamless experience for them that accounts both for their data preferences, builds trust, drives loyalty. And so I, I think that that's so fascinating. That That's something that I'm super excited about is like bringing privacy and preference out of this silo and into the way we're thinking about consumer experience and relationships. So Ariel, I want to round up the conversation here. It's kind of with like a, a recap because we talked about a lot, a lot of exciting things happening in the privacy space. I think to your point, a lot of this is going to be good for both consumers and brands going forward. It's going to open up new opportunities on the ways in which we can, you know, target and message and, you know, just provide a better overall experience to our, our consumers in the long run, which is what we all kind of want here. And so knowing that there are both near-term and kind of like long-term implications of all these uh, rollouts, I guess, is there anything that you've been talking to brands about or you're you know recommending to brands that like they should be thinking about as we go into 2022 and even 2023 uh from like a you know a marketing and media and kind of this overall business strategy uh standpoint yeah so i think just starting with the the table stakes piece we we spent a lot of 2020 unpacking uh what counts as a sale under ccpa right like brands were trying to figure out if they needed to offer an opt-out and, and the IAB benchmarking report as of November last year showed the brands were split on that. So the what I see is good news um, because at least it starts to put that debate to bed and, and lets us get to work around, <laughs> around solutioning um, is that with the trio of new state laws um, that take effect in 2023, it is quite clear that the expectation is that you offer an opt-out when personal information is used for behavioral advertising. They call it slightly different things. There will be nuances, of course, but um, it doesn't matter if you're selling. It's, it's, it is quite likely that, uh, that opt-outs will need to be offered. And so in that, one of the things that, that brands can start doing is like thinking through it, even for brands that don't offer a sale opt-out, they may have like, industry opt-out mechanisms enable, like they may be integrated with the DAA framework or the IAB framework. So evaluating the way that you're managing consumer preference just from an alignment to, to emerging law and requirements um, is one piece. Uh, the other piece is understanding, like do, basically do a, do a data evaluation, understand holistically what data you have how you're using it, who you're sharing it with, and the like. Um, that's going to enable both the privacy-related readiness work that you're doing and also the cookie-less readiness that you're going to do, right? So it's a good time to do that hygiene and take stock of the data you have, evaluate what partners you, you would be uh, smart partnerships for your brand and the like, right? And then on the next type of opportunities, Back to that idea of preference management and privacy experience. I, in, in my view, like put simply, marketing, legal, IT, privacy should get in a room. And, uh, <laughs> that's a big ask. <laughs> yeah. And, and map this out together. Look, I know that that's, that's not the way that things have traditionally worked. But one of the things that, w that I was so excited about um, last year with the, with the privacy primer conversations that we proactively had with our clients is that it facilitated that. And it was kind of awesome because now you have these conversations about like, well, here... Here's the impact on the business. Here are the approaches that we that we were kicking around from a legal standpoint. Hey, like tech team, can how feasible is this to set up? And through that collaboration, you get to a workable place, 
right? So I, I think like having establishing that that governance and and who your stakeholders are and and coming together to align on what meets um, your needs from a privacy perspective, from a business perspective, and from a consumer relationship perspective, um, that get it's never too early to start those those conversations. Well, Ariel, that was fantastic. Um, just we t- we covered a lot, and I just every time we talk, I feel like I learned something new. Um, but listeners, if you're looking uh, to you know learn more, uh, obviously you can get in contact with Ariel, but you can also reach out to the lab and get access to the latest innovation annual where uh, Ariel talks about consumer privacy uh, and preference. That's a really great piece if you're looking for more uh, information. So with that, uh, Ariel, where can our listeners find you uh, on the internet? Uh, so they can find me on Twitter at Ariel S Garcia. Um, or or reach out to me via email. Perfect. That's great. Well, Ariel, thank you again for coming on Floor 9. Uh, it's always a pleasure, uh, and we look forward to having you back uh, again soon. Awesome. Thank you. Hi, this is Alice Bell Black from the Magnet Intelligence team with some highlights from our recently published sports report. First, the summer of soccer. Though somewhat overshadowed by the delayed Tokyo Olympics, Four major soccer tournaments took place in the late spring and summer of this year. Nielsen data shows that Hispanic American viewers were particularly engaged with these events, with Univision's coverage of the Gold Cup and the UEFA Champions League final earning longer lengths of tune on average than the Super Bowl. Interestingly, we also found that Hispanic viewers watching outside their homes were more likely to tune into the English language coverage, demonstrating the need for creative assets that can connect in both English and Spanish. While esports has become a big industry, it's still the domain of a relatively small but dedicated audience. Interest continues to grow, and Twitch in particular has seen its audience reach increase steadily across all age groups, including adults 50+. The NFL and college football seasons have gotten off to a strong start from an audience perspective, and sports betting may be playing a role. As it becomes legal in a growing number of states, broadcast and cable ad spend from sportsbook services has grown as well, already reaching higher levels this year than all of 2019 and 2020 combined. Having money on the line may well be giving fans more reason to tune in. To read more about the sports landscape, you can download our report from our Atlas portal. If you're interested in this or any other Magna Intelligence publications but don't have access, reach out to us at forecasting at magnaglobal.com. Thanks for listening. Listeners, that is going to wrap up this week's episode of Floor 9. As always, you can find myself and Adam on Twitter. I am at T-I-P-P-I-E-R. Adam is at Adam J. Simon. And our lab official account is at IPG Lab. So thank you all for listening. And we'll be back real soon with another episode of Floor 9. (laughs) 